0: Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, in fact, we continue in our study of the book of Daniel, we're walking verse by verse through this incredible prophetic book, and uh, we find ourselves in Daniel chapter 2, if you are new to us and just joining us, I will say yet again that we planned out our sermon series uh, about a year in advance, we started last fall kind of working through All of what we would be focusing on as a church and prayer and prophecy came to the top last fall and I can't imagine anything that would be more timely for us to focus on in praying to the Lord and seeking his heart about where things are currently and where things are going. So Daniel chapter 2 and I I invite you to, uh, to prayerfully consider the word of God with me. Napoleon Bonaparte dominated all throughout Eastern Europe, or or all throughout Europe rather, in the Eastern world, and even global affairs for over a decade as the leader of France. He was an incredible military leader. He was a French statesman. He became the emperor of France. And I want you to hear this. I ran across a quote. Napoleon, uh, coming close to the days of his death, literally on his deathbed, said these words this great commander, as he was about to die. Listen. I, too, shall soon be in my grave. Such is the fate of great men. So it was with the Caesars and Alexander, and I, too, will be forgotten. And the conqueror and the emperor will become a college theme. My exploits will be tasks given to pupils by their tutors. I die before my time and my dead body must return to the earth and become only food for the worms. Behold, the end is at hand for him who was called the great Napoleon. What an abyss between my brief misery and the eternal reign of Christ who proclaimed, loved and adored and whose kingdom will extend to all the earth forever. As I read that, I just had to think to myself, had Napoleon only read Daniel chapter 2, he could have saved himself a wasted life and a disappointed death. Because as we study together, one thing becomes very clear to us from Daniel chapter 2, and that one thing is this, that the kingdoms of this world are passing. The kingdoms of this world will fade away. Governments will rise, but they will all fall. But mark my words that the kingdom of Christ will reign forever and ever. Hang on to that because that is the place where we find ourselves. The kingdoms of this world are passing away. And the kingdom which will one day become a physical reality, Christ will reign physically here on the earth. We believe that from our study of scripture. But Christ is already working. You see, that future kingdom is already at work in our hearts. Jesus came proclaiming that. He has set up his kingdom within us. And and you've heard me say this often, that the kingdom of God is already... But not yet. The kingdom of God is at hand, is what John the Baptist preached. Repent, for the kingdom is here. And that kingdom has already come, but it's not completely realized. It will come, not just spiritually, but it will come physically. Christ will establish his rule and his reign. He will appear on a white horse, and he will in power and dominion and authority and glory and honor reign forever. And all that is evil will be cast out of his world and all of the dominion and the kingdoms of this world will be folded into the kingdom of our God and his Christ and he will reign forever. And as we think about that together, as we consider him reigning over the the world, he will literally physically rule and reign over the whole world, but this kingdom has not yet been fully realized. Now what we see is this, when that kingdom comes, it will be a radically different story than we read today. I read a statement uh, this week from an old-time Bible commentator. It was written in the 30s, and it was about his days. It explained the hostilities that the world has had toward the kingdom of God. Now, we'll move into our text in a moment, but I want you to just see this. I want to set the stage for all of you to hear this thought that all the world, here's what this one preacher said, all the world is idolatrous and self-willed. It is sinful, intolerant, defiant of God. It is blasphemous and incurably corrupt. This wicked world has always defied God and dishonored Christ and denied his authority. This wicked world has clubbed his ables, has mocked his Isaacs, sneered and stoned his saints, poked fun at his prophets and flung his holy youth into diverse dens. And beheaded its fiery Baptists. It has slain his saints and killed them with the sword. But thank God, thank God that in a day which is soon to dawn, the smiting stone will come and crush the world empires and their governments and smash them to pieces. They will be pulverized to powder and swept from the earth like chaff blown away from the wheat. Folks, the devil seems to have had an upper hand in these days, but it's good to know that there's another chapter yet to be written. Amen? It's good to know that there is more to come. The best is yet to be. It's good for us to understand and know that there is in the not-so-distant future more to this place. Because the God that we serve has the whole world in his hands. Now, we've been studying the prophecy of the image of Nebuchadnezzar, he saw it in a dream, it was a huge statue, and we're, we're going to consider this, Daniel gave to him the interpretation of the dream, and also gave to God divine credit, in fact, a good place for us to start would be to back up just a little bit to verse 28, Daniel chapter 2, verse 28, we'll put it on the screen, and I want you to see this, because this is powerful, Daniel stood before the king, a young Hebrew teenager, standing before the most powerful man on earth, and he says, but there is a God God in heaven, who reveals secrets, and he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what happened in the dream. Uh, he has shown Nebuchadnezzar, excuse me, what will happen in the future. And now I will tell you your dream and the visions you saw as you lay on your bed. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was at home alone, he was in the palace. And he called his wise men together and he said, tell me the the meaning of this troubling dream that I've had. And just to make sure that you are who you say you are and able to do what you say you're able to do, don't just tell me what it means, tell me what it was. He couldn't fully remember the dream, but it haunted him in his waking hours and it kept him from sleep at night. And a forgotten dream in that Eastern culture was a bad omen, and he wanted someone to tell it. And Daniel came to the place of prayer, and God showed him the meaning. And so Daniel said this, there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. In fact, the very first thing I want you to see in our outline of study is this, God has given a powerful new name, and that name is the God who reveals secrets. The God who reveals secrets. This has not been used in all of the Bible up to this point in Daniel. And it's not again used until we see in the book of Revelation. But the God who reveals secrets, the one who knows everything, is the one that Daniel prayed to. Again, that ought to bring us such confidence. Part of the reason we study prophecy is not so that we have information, but because we will know these things, we would live with transformation. Our lives would be different today because of what we know is going to happen on that day. He is a God who reveals secrets. An awesome look at not just his ability, but his character. I I want you to hear this, church family. Look at me. He not only knows the future, his longing is that he would know you and that you would know him. He knows us intimately, and his desire is that we would know him. We would experience him. And so he's a revealing God. Think about it. If God didn't reveal himself, what would we know of him? But God has made it unmistakable. You cannot look at a sunset or a sunrise. You cannot look at the waves on a beach or at a majestic mountain and say there is nothing that created this. It just all happened. No, there is intelligent design and there is beauty in this world. And God says that all of the firmament gives him praise and glory and testifies to his existence. So you and me today need to understand that this God who reveals secrets, who is able to tell us, Mr. Mysterious things is the one that gave this dream and interpretation to Daniel. Let's take a quick look, if we can, again, at the image of the dream. It was a statue. I think we hopefully have got a picture of it. But but this statue was the image of a man. And this man, this statue, was made of various materials, from gold all the way down to iron and clay at the bottom. And if you remember from last week, we said that this is very simply an unfolding timeline of all of history, from Daniel's day through our day to the end. It's a picture of Babylon ruling and reigning. He told Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold and Nebuchadnezzar said yep that's right I sure am I'm all that and a bag of chips I'm everything and he said but it's not going to last Nebuchadnezzar a kingdom will follow yours and it'll be a kingdom inferior to yours That had to be fairly salty. I would imagine that a king would say, well, maybe he's more dominant, more powerful, and he takes over. But no, the Medes and the Persians will come. And if you remember, he was the head of gold. Medo-Persia were the arms and chest of silver. So there was a declining in value, a declining in weight. But there's a division, the Medes and the Persians. And by the way, I want to make sure you remember, that did happen. In history, Cyrus came to power and then Alexander the Great becomes the Greek Empire that will take over the Medes and the Persians. He ruled with a a, a military force and it's the belly and thighs of bronze in this statue. And then we see the twin towering legs of iron, and it's Rome, the Eastern and Western Roman Empire. Let me just say this, if you've not heard last week's sermon, you need to go back and listen so that you can kind of catch up on the interpretation of the dream, because what I want to do today is focus on the end of the dream. We're going to see something unique. It moved from there to a ten-nation confederation that's coming in the future all of those first three happened, we have not yet gotten to the end. We know that we are waiting the end to happen, but everything else that God said would happen, happened. And we can have great confidence today that the rest will be fulfilled. Now we come to the end of the dream, and where does the decline of all of these nations lead us? You see, as King Nebuchadnezzar looked at this colossus, this gigantic statue standing tall, he saw a still, monstrous, immovable image. But all of a sudden, we see motion. It goes from a snapshot to a video. And we see a stone rolling toward the feet of this statue, and it's going quickly. In fact, let's pick up in verse 34 of Daniel chapter 2. As you watched, a rock was cut from a mountain, not by human hand. It struck the feet of iron and clay, smashing them to bits. The whole statue was crushed into small pieces of iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold. And then the wind blew them away without a trace, like chaff on a threshing floor. But the rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain that covered the whole earth. And during the reign, now verse 44, if you will, skip down there with me. During the reigns of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never Be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness and it will stand forever. That is the meaning of the rock cut from the mountain, though not by human hands, that crushed to pieces the statue of iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. The great God was showing the king what will happen in the future. And just to be sure, I love this last sentence that he adds on. The dream is true and the meaning is certain. Just in case somebody here thinks this is a fairy tale. Just in case, Nebuchadnezzar, you don't believe this. Just in case you think that this is just some made-up, fanciful story. Just in case you think, that's crazy, he said. The dream is true and the interpretation is sure. You need to hear this today, folks. God gave to Daniel and to us a great gift. He gave us a picture of the future that will live in our minds, hopefully as a backdrop reminder that we ought to live differently today. What an encouragement of God's great power. The stone that was detached from a mountain comes hurling down toward this statue and destroys it. This is surely the climax of the vision. And so what is this picture? Here's the question for us today. What is this stone cut without hands, and what is this mountain that grows? What is it that we see? I want you to add this very quickly to your notes. Number two, I want you to see not only was God given a new name here, but we see a powerful new king, the stone cut without human hands. The stone cut without human hands. What does that even mean? Well, I want you to understand with me that over 14 times in Scripture, Jesus is referred to as a stone or as a rock. And I want you to see this. I wish we had time to unfold and unpack all 14 of these. This morning, I'm going to sort of categorize them down to six and just show you places. But I cannot tell you how excited I am to preach. When you, you tell a preacher in, in his text, okay, this Sunday you're going to preach on Jesus, King Jesus that's like throwing a stake before a tiger and saying, sick them. I'm just telling you, as I studied all week, God laid this before me and said, you just preach on the glory of Jesus. So, if you're excited about King Jesus, you're going to be excited with me. If you're not, well, just hold on. I pray that you will be. The Bible calls Jesus over and over again a stone. And we're going to look at this together. This was a stone cut without human hands. Well, only God could do that. It was separated from a mountain. I want you to see this. What a beautiful foretelling of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. No human involvement there. God separated himself as Jesus Christ left heaven and came to earth. A stone without the intervention of human hands, cutting it from the mountain. And it became a mountain later again. And we'll see that all together. But this stone hurls toward all the world kingdoms and brings them them toppling down. Jesus Christ is that stone. The Messiah is that stone. Let me give you a, a great statement that, that uh, we need to hang on to. Man can make bricks, but only God can make a stone. Man can make bricks, but only God can make a stone. And this beautiful picture is said twice in verse 34, uh, or 35 and 45, that it was a stone without human intervention. It was cut without human hands. Let's consider some of the places, the biblical images, if you will, of Jesus as a stone. Number one, I want you to see the smitten stone. The smitten stone. Do you remember in Exodus, it was Exodus chapter sixteen or 17, Moses was leading the people in the wilderness, and Moses took his staff and he struck a rock, and when he smote that rock, water gushed forth, and water was plenteous there, and this was an arid place there in the desert, but he struck the rock, and when he struck the rock, water flowed, and all of the Israelites had water to meet their needs. The Apostle Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians 10. You may want to jot that down somewhere. 1 Corinthians 10, 4. Listen to these words. He interprets that event for us. He said, they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and the stone was Christ. The Apostle Paul said it, that rock was Christ. He was the smitten stone. Well, obviously we see the smitten stone of Exodus becomes a picture of the smitten stone Christ who was struck on the cross of Calvary. And what happened when they struck the stone in the Old Testament? Water flowed. When Jesus Christ was pierced for you and for me, his blood gushed forth. But what did it bring to them in that day? Life, quenching, thirst, quenching water. And what did it bring for us in our day from that cross? When Jesus' blood gushed forth, it brought for us eternal life and freedom and forgiveness and salvation. And the smitten stone Jesus has painted clearly throughout the scriptures. Who was he smitten by? He was smitten by the beast. The Roman soldiers, one of those world figures struck him down, but it was only a temporary strike because now we see that that stone would be cut away from the mountain, not by human hands, and would crush the world empire's Into pieces. What a glorious picture that he becomes the fountainhead of blessing and of life. The smitten Savior becomes the Redeemer of the world. And just as Paul said, as Moses smote the rock and water came forth, so Jesus became. The smitten stone. And by the way, one day we understand very clearly, even from this text, that one day the smitten stone will become the smiting stone. One day he will strike the kingdoms of the earth, he will smite the beast and crush those world kingdoms. Number two, I want you to see this Jesus is known as a stone of stumbling, a stumbling stone. Isaiah 8.14, write that down. It's not on the screen or in your notes, but jot down Isaiah 8.14. He will keep you safe, but to Israel and Judah, he will be a stone that makes people stumble, a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap. And a snare. You see, they would stumble all over him. They couldn't comprehend a suffering servant. They couldn't comprehend a Messiah that would not come reigning and ruling in power. They expected him to overthrow Rome. And because he didn't, because he came as a babe in a manger, and because he came with a mission to die, they could not accept it, and they rejected it, and he became a stumbling stone for them. Number three, I want you to see that he's a a stone of help. A stone of help. The word in Hebrew is Ebenezer. We use that word sometimes. I asked Heidi if she remembered that word and she thought about Ebenezer Scrooge. She said that sounds like an old person's name. Well Ebenezer. I don't know any Ebenezers personally. But we sing about that in a great hymn. Here I raise mine Ebenezer. I always wonder when I was a kid. What does that mean? What's that all about? An Ebenezer. It means a stone of help. It was an altar. And they would raise up an altar, and it literally means this. In the old King James, they used the word hitherto. It means right up until now, God has been my help. Can I just get a witness? Can you say that hitherto God's been your help? Can you say that the only reason you are where you are today is by the grace of God, that God has brought you through to today? God has brought you through probably many toils and dangers and snares. God has allowed you to continue to live. There are people in this room that by the choices that you've made probably should have died a long time ago. But God has continued to providentially watch over you and to help you. And the Bible says in the Old Testament that they raised up an ebenezer, a stone of hell, and said, God, you help me thus far. I have an office full of Ebenezer's. If you were to go into my office or my study, there are all kinds of things that remind me of times where God showed up. Remind me of times where God helped me. Remind me of times that God brought me to that point. Hitherto, God, you have been my help. Well, Jesus is for us our stone of help. I want you to see the next one, if you will. We've seen these in different ways, but this one may be one of the most familiar. Jesus is called the cornerstone. That would make a great song to sing about. Oh, wait a minute. We sang that this morning. Jesus is our cornerstone. My hope is built on nothing less than what? Jesus' blood and righteousness. You sang it. Is that true of you? Can you say that all of my hope is built on nothing else? I'm not banking on the government. Some of say, nope, not. I'm not banking on my bank account. I'm not banking on my intellect or my ability to, to network. I'm not banking on my education. I'm not banking on my own skill or my looks. I have hope in nothing else but Jesus Christ. His shed blood, his righteousness becoming mine. You see, in every building, there is one stone that is central or crucial. It's the stone upon which the weight of the entire building and structure rests. Sometimes it's called a special stone or the cornerstone. And Jesus is referred to over and over again as the cornerstone on which the entire house rests. I love this. Isaiah said it hundreds and hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. See now, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. That's Isaiah 28, 16. How could Isaiah, who lived more than 700 years before Christ, describe the characteristics of Jesus so accurately? Because he was a great prophet? No, but because he was a prophet of a great God. God has the whole world in his hands. And he knew that one day he would send Jesus Christ. Peter, in conversation with Jesus at Caesarea Philippi, who do you say that I am? And he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Peter said, You got it right. Jesus said, yes, and you didn't get that on your own. God has revealed that to you. For on this stone, on this foundation, and he was talking about himself as the Messiah. Jesus is the cornerstone of our lives. He's the cornerstone of our church. He's the cornerstone of our faith, and he is the cornerstone of all hope for all ages. And all of a sudden, we see this stone hurled from the mountain and careening down toward the feet of this idol and all of a sudden all of the world kingdoms collapse and there is no more sign of them. They're wiped away and Jesus Christ rules and reigns. Let's continue to see that not only is he the cornerstone, he's the rejected stone. The Bible says this in Isaiah and in the New Testament that this stone the builders rejected became the cornerstone. That Jesus Christ came to his own and they knew him not. They didn't receive him. And there are many, many people who fit that kind of a description. That they have come to Christ and, and, and checked it out. They've looked at Christianity. Maybe you're there. Maybe you've been tempted to stand on the outside and look in. He's not been the cornerstone of your life And. You've rejected him. You've turned away from him. Well, I want you to see that whether you have accepted him today or in the past or not, he's still the cornerstone. And here is the most important I want you to see. He is the coming stone. He is going to come. And the Bible says that he will destroy the image which represents the world governments of our day. What a blow to Nebuchadnezzar. In his mind eye, he saw himself rolling into the future eternally reigning until he died. But you need to see this just as Napoleon came to the end of his life and said, my body will return to to the earth and become food for worms. All of us need to see that the kingdoms of this world are passing away. In his mind eye, he sees this stone of God from the mountain rolling like a gold medal Olympic skier and pulverizing this image. And the stone then fills the whole earth, which gives us Another perspective we're going to see in just a moment. Nebuchadnezzar saw all of this in his mind's eye. Number three, I want you to see. We've seen a new name, a new king, but now we see a powerful new kingdom. And it is the mountain. So if the king is the stone, his kingdom is considered the mountain. It says that it fills the entire earth. He is rejoined. It grew, in essence, to become a mountain. So what I want to do for the last couple of minutes we're together, I want to share with you some characteristics of the kingdom of God. As we think about Bible prophecy, there are many who take different approaches to the kingdom. Some believe in a literal coming thousand year reign of Christ. They're called premillennialists. And we believe that here at Hardy Street. The vast majority of our people have a better understanding of that as the literal interpretation of Scripture. And that's where I personally fall in the camps. We're not going to study all of those uh, isms today. We'll get into those later in our study. But I want you to see some characteristics of the kingdom that may help you understand better what's coming. You see, there is at least one view that says we are going to slowly but surely infiltrate the world as the church and we are the kingdom of God and we will rise up and influence the world. Let me ask you this. Is that what you see outside your window? Do you see the church gaining power? Do you see the church gaining influence? Do you see love spreading everywhere? Do you see people getting along in the streets? Do you see racial reconciliation? Do you see hatred and animosity and prejudice going away? Hello? No way. And the kingdom of God will come very swiftly. And we'll see that as we follow through this text. But I want you to hear this. People are being born faster than they're being born again. We're not even keeping up with population change. We're losing ground as a church. And so I can't possibly fathom the idea that we are going to usher in God's kingdom by getting better and better. The Bible says it's going to get gloriously dark. The Bible says it'll get worse before it gets better, and we will be raptured out of this place, and then Christ will establish his kingdom. Let's look together at a couple of thoughts here. It says very, very pointedly in Daniel chapter 2, look back with me if you will, in verse forty-five or 44. During the reigns of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness. It will stand for how long? Forever, it says. It will stand forever. That is the meaning of the rock cut from the mountain, though not by human hands. Crushed to pieces, the statue of iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. The great God was showing the king what will happen in the future. The dream is true, and its meaning is certain. Let's think for a moment about this mountain. What is the kingdom of God like? I want to give you some some just clear pictures. Number one, it is supernatural. It is cut without hands. God gave no human intervention. God alone did this. Man, again, can make bricks, but only God can make a stone. And this stone is divinely originated. The image of man's creation, excuse me, the image that we see is man's creation. And the stone is God's creation. Man built up what he thought was, was infinite and powerful. Interesting to me, and we've already studied into chapter 3 as Scott Alexander preached that passage to us. But do you remember that Nebuchadnezzar right after this builds a statue? What does he build it from? Head to toe, gold. He said, I'll show Daniel. I'll show God. Now, that's not the immediate reaction. Here's what happens. When Daniel tells him the dream, he falls to his knees. He says, only God could do what you've just done. Only God could tell me the future. Only God could tell me the dream. And I don't know if his confession was real or not. We know it wasn't lasting. We know it didn't continue. But he fell on his face before a holy God and recognized the power of God. The kingdom of God is supernatural. One day God is going to break through all of the chaos of what we understand here on earth. And he will establish a kingdom. Think about Jesus Christ. The stone that is cut without human hands. No human hands fashion the substance of Christ. His virgin birth is beautifully pictured there. He was born without human help, resurrected without the help of human hands, and one day on his own he will establish a kingdom. The Lord of glory will be the ruler and reigner of all there is. Number two, it will be swift. It it says that this swift blow comes to these other kingdoms and destroys them. All of these other kingdoms were built up over time. They succeeded one another. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome... A confederation to come. All of those come, but when Christ comes to set up his kingdom, it'll be sudden. The Bible tells us it'll be in the twinkling of an eye. The Bible tells us he'll come like a thief in the night. Now, I'm not talking about the rapture. I'm talking about the second coming. Jesus Christ is going to come back for his church. The Bible is clear. The trumpet will sound, and we will be gone. You say, Pastor, when is this going to happen? Again, if you had an amillennial or a postmillennial view, you would say, we are the kingdom of God. Just can't go there in my mind. But in this premillennial sense, God is going to set up and establish a kingdom. The Bible says that it will happen after a seven-year period of time called the Great Tribulation. So here's what I can tell you. I don't know exactly when it is. It could be as soon as seven years from now. Because before I finish speaking today, God could rapture the church and take us to heaven. And he will give the Jews another opportunity to respond, to repent. And this great tribulation will come. But the Bible says in the twinkling of an eye, Jesus Christ will come. And he will establish his kingdom. This stone cut without human hands will strike all the other kingdoms of the world. And he will rule and reign forever and forever. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. I'm glad you said that. I was going to have to start over. Jesus is great. And powerful. And good. His kingdom will be supernatural. And it will come swiftly. It will come very quickly. Quickly, In fact, I want you to read this or or hear this in Matthew 24, very quickly. Immediately after the anguish of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of heaven will be shaken, and then at last the sign of the Son of Man is coming, will appear in the heavens, and there will be deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and with glory. Look at this with me, if you will, at the the swiftness. In verse 34, it says it smote the image. It broke it to pieces. It was like chaff that blew away. Verse 44, broken into pieces, consumed. It's not smooth and gentle. It's a a sense of violence. He will come and he will enact judgment. Let me say it this way. The sweet little baby Jesus will become a conquering warrior and king. Make no mistakes, he didn't stay in a cradle, in a manger. Jesus Christ, who is glory eternally past and glory eternally future, will come again and we will see him in all of his radiant splendor. I say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. He will come on a white horse riding with wrath and fury and judgment. And the coming king will come with severe and swift and complete judgment. The Bible says he will purge the earth of the kingdoms of this world like chaff. Number four, I want you to see this. It's there in your notes, but it'll be a sovereign kingdom. Our text simply says it will last forever. It will never be conquered. It will never be consumed are overcome. He will be a monarch without succession. He will take place in permanence. The kingdoms of the world rotate. I said to you last week, America's not promised a future. Most dynasties and kingdoms have lasted about 200 years, and it seems like we're tottering on the brink of collapse. I love our nation, but Jesus Christ is the ultimate king and the ultimate kingdom, and it will bring heaven to this earth and rule forever, and it'll be successful. It says that it will not end. It shall stand forever. Here's the key question, folks. Has anything like that ever happened? The answer is no, not yet. You see, the statue stands, and we are a part of that unfolding history. God gave us something simple. He said, listen up. This is what the world's going to look like. Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom's going to fall to the Medes and the Persians, and it did. Medes and Persians, your kingdom will be absorbed by a power. The Greeks, under Alexander, came and ruled. And the Romans took over the Greeks, and we await this coming rule. And then the stone will crash into that party. God holds the whole world in his hands. You see, there wasn't a kingdom that stood forever forever. In Babylon, there wasn't a kingdom that stood forever in the arms and the chest of the Medes and the Persians. Alexander couldn't hold it together forever. The Romans couldn't hold it together forever. And again, we ask, when is this going to happen? We don't fully know. But God's given you two options. And out of everything I've said, you need to listen up. In fact, I want you to sit up straight and just tune in your ears for a moment. God's given you two options. You can bow to King Jesus today, meeting him as Savior and forgiver and redeemer of your life and as your Lord, or you can one day bow before him as judge. And I don't know how to make it any more clear than that. I just want you to hear this from me. As Nebuchadnezzar heard, God is in control. He fell on his face before God. Some of you need to say, Pastor, I've been in control of my life for a long time. You're not going to stay that way. God is in control of your life even right now. If you're breathing right now, if you can take your fingers and feel a pulse, it's because God ordained that your heart beat right here this morning. And God is in control of your future and your destiny. And I want to tell you right now, each and every person in here needs to make the right choice. I'm begging of you, would you trust Jesus today? Would you come to him by faith and experience the life-giving flow, the fountainhead, the smitten rock whose blood gushed so that you could be forgiven? You see, blood is a requirement of forgiveness. I don't know why God chose it that way other than to show us that it's serious. But the life is in the blood. And Jesus gave his life for you. Either you will spend eternity in uh, attempt to pay for your sins or someone else will pay for them. And the only person qualified was Jesus. And he offers payment today. And you can receive that by faith. You can simply say, Jesus, I want to be a follower of yours. I want to belong to you. I want what you did on the cross to count for me. Some of you ought to say, Pastor, I need that now. In just a moment, we're going to walk away from this place. If the need of your life is to be saved, just stay right where you are. We'll have encouragers here. We, We just have prayer partners we call encouragers. And they would love to sit down and talk to you. Just to share with you from the Word of God how you can be saved today. What does it mean to be saved? It means that you have eternal life with God, that you're a part of His kingdom. Do you remember I said His kingdom is already but not yet? You can join the kingdom of God today, or one day you'll join it by force because the Bible says that there's coming a day that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But all of those who had not confessed him by faith will be cast into outer darkness away from his kingdom that will stand forever. Would you trust the Lord Jesus Christ today? Let me pray for us. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you do the work that only you can do? Would you convict in this place and bring to mind and to heart the needs of the people that are here? If there's one today, Lord, that needs to say, I need Jesus, Father, would you give them the courage to step out and trust you? In Jesus' name I pray. And all God's people together said, Amen. Over the course of these last several weeks, you know because we're trying to practice some physical distancing and not cross back and forth, we're not having a, an invitation as we normally would. We're not playing music and moving into that time. We're going to dismiss in a moment. But if the need of your life in any way is to pray with someone... It's to be saved. It's to join with this church. We have encouragers that will meet you here at the front, but we're going to dismiss. And as we dismiss, be mindful that there are people who are wrestling with spiritual decisions. Don't put it off and walk out. Don't leave today without trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't leave today without knowing for certain, just as certain as Daniel said, the dream is true and the interpretation, the meaning, it is certain. All of those things that God said will happen. They're going to happen, and you today can be a part of his kingdom by placing your faith in him. I love you. I thank you for the privilege that I have to serve as your pastor. There are things that are coming up. I pray and go, as as Patrick mentioned in our video earlier, simple way for you to prayer walk. There are 50,000 homes in the Pine Belt, and my goal and my desire is that we would prayer walk all 50,000 of them in the next five years, that we would audaciously at least once a month gather and take door hangers and we would go and we would pray over every home and just put a door hanger. We're not asking you to knock on doors, engage people. We're asking you to just trust that God will take those prayers and he will move in their hearts. And it's a big task, but I believe we can do some great things. And then coming in September. It's in line with the, the Jewish festivals that are coming up. The Jewish festivals in the fall happen in September. And we're going to have a national day of prayer. You saw the video. It's a returning. We're gonna, uh, we'll be talking a lot about that over the next couple of weeks. You're going to get information in the email newsletter this afternoon. But just know this, we're going to join in with millions of Christians all around the world that are praying for Jesus to come back. And we're praying for God to restore our nation. We're praying for God to bring revival. Oh, that he would break into our world. We need him. If we ever needed the Lord before, we sure do need him now. Would you agree with that? Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. If you have a spiritual decision of some sort and you need to talk or pray with someone, Just hang out for a few minutes and our encouragers will be here at the front.